0: Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians, academics and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is ecological economist John Gowdy. John joined me to explain what we can learn from ants. (laughs) Uh, Apparently ants, termites and humans are the only species on this planet which are ultra social. That means living in extremely complex social organizations, which apparently leads to the decrease of individual complexity. What that means is, as a society gets more complex, individuals become simpler. Unfortunately, John and I experienced some technical difficulties uh, during this interview, so it's a little bit shorter than it ordinarily would, and also a little less dynamic. Uh, It wasn't possible to go back and forth on a lot of these points. But thankfully, he has a tremendous amount of knowledge on a wide-ranging set of topics from ants and termites, as I said, to the economy, to social organisation, to sustainability, etc. And we got into that through the lens of uh, discussing his book, Ultrasocial, The Evolution of Human Nature and the Quest for a Sustainable Future fantastically as well. John peppered this podcast with lots of uh, book recommendations. So grab a pen for this one, team. Uh, You will want to take notes, um, as I did throughout, about all these different books that have informed his thinking. I hope you enjoy today's episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you love the episode, support the podcast at planetcritical.com or on Patreon. Becoming a paid subscriber or a patron also directly supports my independent investigations into climate corruption around the world, exposing dangerous industry greenwashing and the world's worst climate fraudsters. If that's important to you, join the Planet Critical community who help make that happen. And to those of you already supporting the podcast and my work, thank you so much. John, thank you very much for joining me on Planet Critical. It's a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's nice to not be there, but be here and <laughs> talk to you. Yeah.
0: So let's do a whistle-stop tour of your career um, and then get into Ultrasocial, this fantastic book of yours.
1: Okay. Uh, well, I started out in academically. I started out in um, anthropology. Uh, well, maybe I should back up a little bit. I grew up in <clears throat> the American South in the, the wilds of the Arkansas Ozarks. So uh, there weren't many people where I lived, so I, it sort of that got me, mm-hmm. I think, into nature. You know, I grew up with nature and hiking in the woods as a child and all that. Um, <clears throat> and then my father uh, got a job with the Food and Drug Administration in Washington, so I moved there, got a degree in anthropology from American University, and uh, actually I was in graduate school in anthropology. So that that's sort of my first love, and I uh, I never really left it. But I got more and more into economics, realizing, you know, how important that is in terms of policy and, uh, I mean, economists, for better or worse, frequently for worse, sort of shaped the policy agenda. I mean, it's, a, you know, you never hear of uh, sort of the president's council of sociologists or political scientists or whatever. You know, it's all economics. Um, so I, I went to... Um, N- not a particularly good school, but I had a really nice fellowship. Uh, I'd just gotten out of the Army. I had a small child, so I uh, I didn't, it was everything paid for. I didn't have to teach or anything else. But uh, that was West Virginia University. And uh, when I registered for classes, my advisor said, well, you should really take courses from this guy, Nicholas Sierczewski-Rosian, who was a visiting professor there. I'd never heard of him. Uh, And I picked up his book, uh, The Entropy Law and the Economic Process. This was the late 70s. And it really changed my life. I mean, I met him the next day, and uh, he was one of the real pioneers in uh, economic theory. Actually, um, he wrote papers in the 30s, very mathematical papers, sort of critiquing the psychological basis, or the lack of the psychological basis of what's called Valuation Economics. Anyway, um, so that was a wonderful experience. He was there every other semester when I was uh, at West Virginia, and uh, so he and Kenneth Boulding were sort of the founding figures of, of ecological economics. And uh, I'm afraid I've been i been you know, I've been president of the international side of the American Society, but. I've become increasingly disillusioned uh, with the field for a number of reasons. Surjewski uh, wrote a book called um, "Energy and Economic Myths," and he had these sort of myths of economic theory. And one of them, the one of the major myths, was the myth of salvation by markets. So he was uh, very critical of like trying to price <laughs> nature, you know, put put prices on things that uh, really can't be priced. Um, the The main sort of obvious thing is irreversible pollution, irreplaceable natural resources, biodiversity and so on. Future generations can't bid on these things. So, uh, you know, imagine how someone would would bid, you know, 50 years from now, and some of the species were losing the ecosystems and so on. And um, so there was a paper published uh, in Ecological mm-hmm. Economics in in, um, no, in Nature in 1996, Pricing nature: What's the value of nature? And it was like several trillion dollars, and that really started uh, the field of ecological economics right. into this whole thing about putting a price on nature, putting a price on this or that species, and so on. And uh, there, there are a lot of it, sort of interesting reasons for that. I think one thing is funding, and the other thing is publications. I mean, you can do these empirical studies and get them published because they're within uh, the framework of standard theory. And um, the field uh, that branch has gotten mm. a lot of uh, funding from private uh, foundations and probably the National Science mm. Foundation, and so on. So, so that's another story. I mean, and oh, just in recent years, I, I've just become so uh, uh, aware of the importance of money and funding and power, not only in politics but also in, in the academic agenda.
0: Can I interrupt okay. quickly and ask? Because my understanding of ecological economics was that it was, you know understanding how to create an economy that can best also protect our ecology and our environment but from what you're saying it sounds like ecological economics perhaps it began as a way to understand the financialization of nature in order to save it because those sounds like quite disparate things
1: yeah it 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 didn't begin as that but it's sort of again the field uh, really got going in the uh, see what was it sort of the the 1980s the mid 80s to uh, to late 80s, and uh, it it started out you know there was a lot of articles Kenneth Boulding, you know, I mentioned Trishiksu, Roche and so on Juan Martinez Allier there are a lot of people who were Richard Norgard and I could go on and on, but uh, they were developing economic theories sort of critical mm-hmm. of of um, the, the standard economic uh, paradigm. But then, with these these studies of pricing nature, then it, it just again it, that's when it started. I think really took off in uh, the early 2000s. And uh, again, uh, if, if you're, I can understand why people would do that. If you're, you know, assistant professor starting out, you write articles like that. You can get them published. Do they get attention? Um, you can. There's a better chance of getting funding mm-hmm. than just being, you know, critical of, critical of the standard paradigm. So, yeah, it took a long time. And it's still, it's not, you know, a monolith yeah. either. There's still people within eco- ecological economics uh, critical of that. Uh, another thing uh, thing I have a problem with is the notion of the steady state. That's become really central uh, to economics. That was, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Herman Daly has been the, the biggest exponent of that. And I'm, you know, not to criticize Herman. I, I know him. <clears throat> I've known him for decades and he's, uh <laughs> He's done more than anybody else to establish the field uh, and really point out sort of the the contradictions between economic growth and human well-being and environmental well-being. But the steady state—it's just—it started as a critique of growth, but then it sort of morphed into this thing in itself. Okay, how do we define the steady state? What are the characteristics? and then, uh, you know, what's the optimal size of the economy? What's the optimal population size? And, um, my problem with that, it really is, it does not uh-huh. have an evolutionary perspective. It's sort of a steady state frozen in time. And you could somehow like this garden of Eden sort of create this thing that will just, you know, stay in a certain, uh, yeah. state and, uh, you know, be sustainable and not change. And so, uh. Anyway, so uh, you, you started to focus on these things like optimal scale, and then you measure the economy, uh, and I, I, that's one reason it got into these, I think, pricing nature and all that. But um, anyway, the, the real economy, the real environment, the real social structure is an evolving, constantly changing, complex system.
0: Which leads so, me on to um, this <clears throat> book that you've written, Ultra Social. Um, I pulled my favorite quote. Um, so for everyone listening, Ultrasocial, uh, John's book, The Evolution of Human Nature in the Quest for a Sustainable Future. And uh, I pulled this little half sentence from the the intro that says, increasing social complexity is associated with a decrease in individual behavioral complexity. Now that just seems fascinating. Yeah. Um, so could you begin by explaining mm. the premise of the book and then we'll get into that?
1: Yeah, uh, the premise of the book it, it it's really based on the work of a social scientist named Donald Campbell, who you know he he died a couple of, well no at least ten years ago maybe fifteen, but he sort of established the basis for look, looking at the human economy as being an ultra social system, and ultra social means uh, there are three kinds of organisms that have these systems, ants, termites, and humans, which he pointed out. I mean, those are the only organisms that have complex uh, city-states, incredibly complex divisions of labor, you know, with dozens, hundreds of occupations. And um, mm-hmm. I, I started this work with a colleague, uh, Lisey Crawl, who's at SUNY Cortland. And uh, uh, in our work, we stress the importance of agriculture. You know, people existed as hunter-gatherers for depending on what you call human, for uh, something like 300,000 years. Uh, Simple, well, small societies, simple technology, but incredibly complex uh, social systems, an incredible amount of knowledge of the environment and how to make a living, and so on. And um, you know, there's again. I always get accused of romanticizing hunter gatherers. People, people rit- really get their backs up if you say something nice about hunter gatherers because it calls into question civilization, and you know, and writing, and culture, and all that. But anyway, uh, so I, I, I really don't do that. It, it was sometimes a harsh existence. Um, anyway, but uh, hunter gatherers basically were because of the nature of their economy. They lived off flows from the environment. Uh, they were egalitarian because by growing up in those cultures, you had the knowledge you needed to make a living. I mean, every person in that culture, uh, knew the plants to eat. They knew the life histories of plants and animals they hunted, uh, you know, how to get by, uh, with agriculture, you began to get state societies after a few thousand years and, uh, control of the means of production by uh, by an elite, uh, and division of occupations uh, into castes. You're we, sort of born into occupations.
0: Can we um just focus uh for a second on because I mean to talk about hunter-gatherers, um it's thousands of years of um social um ways of organizing mm-hmm. And I'm I'm sure not all of them right. uh were organized in the same way. I mean, David Graeber and David Wengrow's book, uh, The Dawn oh, yeah. of Everything, just came out that showed, you know, the differences between how these societies were structured. So is it not a bit yeah. of a generalization to say that you know they were all they were all egalitarian and that was due to the methods of how they, you know, got their food, their energy supply, essentially?
1: No, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh and I think, uh, of course, they're very different because they lived in, in, in uh, you know, very different uh, environments. I'll get back to Graver's book in a minute. Um, but yeah, so they were, you know, the Arctic, uh, <laughs> people had different ways of living and hunting seals and, you know, tropics, seacoast had different cultures and so on. But uh, study after study has shown that they really, and again, egalitarian, you can get really picky on these things. Um, and let me, let me just say, uh, George mm-hmm. erosion had a, a concept, uh, when you analyze or do something, look at something analytically, you have to divide that something into categories. I mean, there are always overlapping boundaries. The transition to hunting and get ga- from hunting and gathering to state societies mm-hmm. took thousands of years, you know, five or 6,000 years. So there are all kinds of intermediate yes. stages. Uh, there there's hunter gatherers that have, a you know, the beginnings of hierarchy because they had a beginning of surplus like the Northwest Coast Indians. But in general, you really can't say they were uh, egalitarian, right. certainly compared to modern cultures, and also sustainable, uh, because they had to be, they lived directly off flows from nature. So if they did anything to interrupt that flows, it quickly came back, uh, came back to bite them.
0: But there were also there were so many different manifestations. I mean, there are yeah. also hunter gatherer societies that were not living in resource plenty um areas and then would travel um and you know were particularly warmongering and then take the resources from 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 their neighbors essentially so i mean don't we have to kind of define the term sustainable there Mm. because surely the sustainability was a part of the plentifulness and then when there wasn't plentifulness we have seen that there was a lot of war and violence in order to get hands on resources which doesn't seem particularly egalitarian
1: Okay, I, I, I don't believe that's in Graber's book too. I don't believe that either. Uh, most of there's been a lot of work on this. Uh, hunter gather societies they had violence, but it was more interpersonal violence. It was like one person against another person. That was the nature of violence. Another person I think has done a real disservice on this stuff is, is Steven Pinker. He really plays fast and loose oh. with the facts. He has this. Uh, yeah. I think it's in his book <clears throat> about hunter gatherer violence, and he lists these. 12 cultures none of them are hunter-gatherers they're all agriculturalists the closest thing to uh, a hunter-gatherer society was one group of aborigines living in sydney in the 1970s and you know, with drugs violence colonialism and all that so you have to be really careful of the stuff um, mm-hmm. a glaring error in graver's book is the claim that hunter-gatherers had monumental architecture uh, and there was this uh, site in turkey that uh, he and a lot of other people mentioned. You know, cl- it was uh, a city-state of about you know, eight to 10,000 inhabitants, monumental architecture, permanent settlements and all that. And he claims based on the, the earlier work done there, that this was ag- Hunter gatherers which it was not. It was a full-blown agricultural society with, with grains and cultivation, storage of grains. <clears throat> and all you have to do is go to Wikipedia and you know, the name of this site, it's, it's a the the last word is Tepic T-E-P-E-C, say something like um, um I don't know can't rem- remember the name it's a Turkish name but uh, so after the the German archaeologist was started ex- excavating that site 1994 he was there for about ten years and when he died they a new team took over and they dug a little bit deeper and found. You know, it was a full-blown agriculture society, like other similar societies in the area. So th- the idea that hunter-gatherers would could live in a community of thousands of people in permanent settlements is just it's just ridiculous. I mean, it, it it was implausible from the beginning, and it's uh, I still can't understand how that took off. I mean, the Graver's book was published last year, uh, and this this has been known for you know ten years, fifteen years, maybe longer. But, so there's a lot of sloppiness in the book. You really have to be careful, and and with the hunter-gatherer literature.
0: All right. Um. I mean, yeah. the what I uh, know about the um the difference in tr- tribal structures and um the ability for the plentifulness and resources and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I've spoken with um I have a few yeah. friends in Papua New Guinea, and their mm-hmm. tribal history is that um it was the tribes yeah. that were living on the coast that had access to plentiful resources that were very very peaceful and then it was the tribes in the mountains that yeah. did not have access to the same kind of resources and i and were very very violent and yeah. um landed on the shores of papua New Guinea and kind of yeah. wiped out these coastal tribes these peaceful people so it is also there in you know indigenous knowledge and indigenous culture that there there is this distinction between
1: yeah. um hunter
0: gatherer societies, depending on what they have access to.
1: Okay, first of all, those are not hunter gatherers. The New Guinea people, they probably talked about, are agriculturalists. You now, they had settled communities, hierarchies, and so on. You have to be okay. really careful. Start with the definition of hunter gatherers, like immediate return hunter gatherers, no agriculture, yeah. uh, no domesticated animals. Uh, constantly moving settlements, no permanent settlements. And yeah, when, with agriculture and surplus, and you, you know, you can hunt, you can gather, you can steal from your neighbors. So there's certainly an incentive there, uh, you know, for, and, and, you know, skirmishes between groups, but yeah, but you have to be really careful. I have to start out with the strict definition of hunter gatherers.
0: So what defines the distinction between hunter gatherer and agriculture agriculturalists, is it surplus?
1: Well, it's agriculture. I mean, they, they grew, they took care of crops that really from beginning, uh, uh, you know, clear the land, plant the crops, tend them, keep animals out, weed them and all that. So it's, uh, it's really creating a, yeah, a surplus of permanent food supply. And when you have that, uh, you know, think of population growth. Uh, if you have an agricultural society, mm-hmm. like, you know, starting in the Middle East, you always want to produce more than you think you need because you can have bad, bad weather, uh, you know, raids from neighbors taking out the crops. So in most years, you have more food than the population needs. When you have that, what happens? The population grows. And early, uh, again, in the Middle East, especially, which most of the research has been done, uh, there was a big advantage to having a larger size. You could protect your resources. You could uh, raid other cultures, other societies, and get to, you know, take over the surplus and so on so the co- the societies that had larger populations grew faster out competed the others so you start getting this uh, this built in imperative for expansion uh, and also exploitation exploitation of resources and mm. people uh and you you get the beginning of hierarchies uh, and then again eventually full blown state societies
0: so then Let's get into f- full-blown state societies. What can we learn from uh, ants and termites? And also, I mean, what can we learn from them in terms of how to create a sustainable future with such a large population and such high energy demands?
1: Yeah, um, so the, the similarities are, uh, with those societies is that the, the whole culture, the whole economy, the whole system is geared toward producing surplus, You know, whether it's ants, termites, or humans. The big difference between humans and ants and termites—and this sounds surprising—humans have castes, hereditary castes, hereditary wealth. Ants and termites do not, so they don't. Ants and termites, you know, they don't have heredity. The queen uh, lays all the eggs, and so on. Yeah, there's some really the fascinating Mm. thing to me about these systems. You know, think of a beehive. We call it an ultra-social system, or a super colony, or a super organism. It's it's really not an organism. I mean, there's no there there. I mean, a beehive. There's no central control. The queen is just an egg-laying machine. So if you look at the central, how does the thing work? I mean, it it's absolutely fascinating. Um, sort of my go-to ultra-social species are cutter ants, um, and they they have this uh, really this civilization, and it's all based on genetics. When a new colony is started, a queen um, with fertilized eggs goes and finds a place. You know, digs a hole, lays the eggs. Those eggs hatch out, and uh, the first generation takes care of the next generation. And they have an amazing ability. Uh, you know, all these occupations. Somehow, the colony, you know, knows uh, what kind of ants to produce: soldiers, or workers, or leaf cutters, or explorers, mm. or carriers, or whatever. Uh, they even have like a kind of untouchable ant that cleans up the waste from the you know underneath the colony, and they're sent down. And once they're they leave the colony to clean up the waste, they're not allowed to come in contact with other wow. ants. I mean, I mean, there's so many parallels. Um, ants have organized warfare between different ants. There's a a kind of ant called Argentine ant in California. And these two super colonies have been fighting for, for decades. They estimate that something like a trillion ants a year might be killed in battles between these, these two colonies. The Pentagon actually studies these things for tactics to use in in battles. Yeah, it's amazing. So uh, they have suicide bomber ants, ants that have this chemical in their bodies, and they go into the enemy lines and blow themselves up. It's, I mean, it's astounding. <laughs> it really is. But, you know, somehow, again, you think of all the, when they study of chimpanzees, they they have some small trait that might be like a sense of fairness or so on, which is is fine. But, you know, you have these, these, you know, the ants who are are so similar to humans in their social structure, but people sort of dismiss them as being, you know, mildly interesting but not relevant to understanding human society. I think that's beginning to change. Yeah, you mentioned before uh, one characteristic of an ultrasocial system is social complexity is associated with individual simplicity. So if you think of, again, uh, an ant colony being a, some sort of superorganism that's not an organism that acts as if it's optimally organizing the different occupations uh, and so on. Well, it takes information from individuals, um, individual ants in that case in that colony. For example, if, an, if, they, if the ant colony is choosing a new site for a nest, somewhere to move, then um, the ants actually vote, vote with their feet. You know, they're six feet. They go explore and try to find a new nest site. Then they report back. And, the you know, the site with the most votes, mm. you know, quote from the ants, that's where the colony moves. But you need that information to be as simple as possible. You know, is this site a good site or not? You know, yes or no. You don't want some sort of long, detailed analysis or, you know, committee, committee report 25 pages long. You know, should we do this or not? Yes or no. <laughs> um, and so there's a fascinating thing that happened with humans uh, after state societies. And that's that our brains uh, started to shrink. The human brain has lost something like 10 or 15% of its size very recently, actually, in the last uh, three or 4,000 years. And the same thing has happened in ants. Ants that live, the larger the society ants live in, uh, the smaller their brains also. They've also shrunk by about 10%. And so individual simplicity seems to facilitate. Uh-huh this collective consciousness. So, uh, and you know, this, this is uh, most of the stuff written about uh, sort of human societies and the social brain and all that, it's very positive, but you know, I don't, I don't really see it as being positive. I'd rather be smarter and, and, you know, take a few more risks. Then, um than have everything done for me, so <laughs> yeah, but you know the, the the human brain is is very expensive in terms of energy.
0: It seems to me then uh, I'm completely riffing here that perhaps sort of part of the problem then is if uh, increasing social complexity means individual simplicity, part of the problem is this hierarchy, and that perhaps some individuals want to maintain their right to yeah. complexity. Yeah and um autonomy and individuation at the expense of others what do you think of that
1: yeah uh yeah that's a good point again a hierarchy in in human society sort of throws everything off uh there's a lot of really good books written about that Uh, especially I was impressed by a book by walter scheidel called the great leveler and he talks about this idea of the circulation of elites which goes way back uh sort of the after when hierarchical societies develop, you get controlled by, uh, you know, call them oligarchs you know, whatever you want to call them the 1%. And, uh, there's always a battle according to, um, Scheidel between, you know, call it enlightened self-interest. You know, we have to give, you know, the masses something, keep them relatively happy. Uh, and then on the other side, those who will, you know, take everything that isn't nailed down. And you're certainly seeing, uh, this now played out through the West, you know, great Britain and the, the U.S., uh, especially. I mean, the U.S. You have the, sort of the the enlightened self-interest represented by the Democrats, and then uh, sort of the new—they uh, call them populist, mm. but they're you know they're really driven by uh, right-wing billionaire money. Uh, you know, the what Tea Party now morphed into this whole mm. Trump phenomenon. So you really mm. see that playing out. And uh, Walter Scheidel um, and also Thomas Pickney and others argue that. You get these periods, these, something like 70 years, 80 years, I think, or a hundred years. You get this turnover of elites, sort of resuffling the decks. The great leveler, Scheidel, again, he goes back 10,000 years, but you have plagues, wars, famine, uh, you know, massive crop failures and so on. And, uh, that reshuffles the deck, the old order is swept away. And then you get this dynamic new order coming in and things are very prosperous for a while. Until the oligarchs over time retake power, that's probably what's happened uh, since World War II. Mm. Uh, You know, the first part of the last century. I mean, you know, imagine that you were born in 1900. You know, go through uh, World War One, Great Depression, World War Two. I mean, by the time you're 50, it's like my God, what kind of society did I grow up in? So the the end result of that after World War Two and the destruction of Europe, Japan, and so on. Uh, you had, you know, a new order coming in. The old guard was swept away. The entrenched cultures and uh, institutions were swept away. So you had this period of really dynamic growth from, what, well, the end of World War II until uh, the 70s or early 80s. And then things seemed to go, started going backwards in terms of, after World War II, there was increasing equality, wages were going up. And then, you know, the, the oligarchs, and. Uh, Going to get comments on this to retook power took charge of things tax cuts for themselves and uh, cut back on social programs and so on so now we seem to be uh, going down the other side you know income inequality in the u.s is i think the worst it's ever been i think it's worse than in the in the 20s or the mm-hmm. so-called gilded age but yeah i mean it's really fascinating to sort of, i mean i like to look at these you know very general Sort of sweeping things
0: sure i mean the first thing that i think of when you say that though is um that yes there was the boom after world war ii and things were certainly getting better in the west but also at the expense of of many other nations and and populations around the world oh yeah um so at what point i mean when we're talking about this super organism at what point do we also localize the examples? I mean, should we now always be looking at the big picture, um, or should we be looking at
1: no. national
0: economies in the same way that you might examine different ant and termite colonies?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's another really good question. Uh, it's it's kind of let me let me sort of get into this. Uh, there is there a group of ants, uh, certain kinds of ants like Argentine ants. That have really colonized the whole globe. They've turned into these super colonies. For example, Argentine ants, and they they travel on ships, you know, around the world and so on. Again, I think they start in Argentina, but they have sort of sub colonies in Australia, Europe, North America. You can take an Argentine ant from a colony mm-hmm. in Japan, put it in the U.S., and it's accepted, or you know, fully accepted. And this is this is unusual. And wow. they seem to have uh, suppressed this competitive gene or allele, I don't know which one it is, um, that, that makes them accepted. OK, the study, there have been a lot of studies of these ants, and they think that when an ant a supercon like this moves into a new area, then there's a tremendous advantage for cooperation. All these new resources there to be exploited, the larger the colony, you can take advantage of economies of scale, economies of scope, economies of size, and so on, right. until resources are uh, you know, exhausted. Been fascinating studies on islands, uh, like there's an island, um, I think it's in, in the Seychelles, that was colonized, the first Argentine, no, these are, they're called crazy ants, it's another species of ants. But these ants colonize uh, this island Beginning around 1997, by 2004, they occupied the whole island, but then the super colony collapsed as they took over the whole island and you know, re- exploited the resources. And then the returns to cooperation you know, were reduced to the point where it didn't pay anymore. So they splintered into these smaller colonies and you know that may be what's happening now with globalization after world war ii there was tremendous advantage for Mm. cultures cooperating countries cooperating and so on because of tremendous growth resources become scarcer and we seem to be now into this um this period of splintering you know splintering at groups in uh, you know all over the world are at each other's throats now that used to to compete or used to cooperate uh more conflict Mm. between countries and uh So it seems to be going back the other way. I mean, this is not necessarily a bad thing in the long run. I think it's again, these transition periods are the problem Yeah. But anyway, that's, um, there are all kinds of these fascinating sort of analogies or parallels.
0: The the thing though, that concerns me when thinking about the, the splintering of, uh, globalization, um, It's not the splintering of globalization in itself, which is concerning, but that splintering of uh, cooperation, because with the urgency of the climate crisis, the ecological crisis, the energy crisis, the economic crisis, I mean, the level of cooperation that it is going to take to actually find and implement solutions yeah. and necessarily contract economies and contract energy demands this seems like the worst <clears> moment <throat> in history really yeah. um to be losing our global co- cooperation yeah. otherwise how are we going to be able to create a sustainable future
1: yep, you're absolutely right and i i'm getting more and more pessimistic by the day i don't know i think there's a quote by woody allen something like no matter how cynical you get it, it's hard to keep up uh, i mean i think i've caught up so, yeah, I, uh, I just, uh, you know, I can't see us doing much about climate change. I mean, the, and, and the thing about climate change, it when it hits and starts really affecting people, which it, it already is, it really won't be about climate change. For example, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the war in Ukraine now, it's just these complex systems. Uh, you can see the, war, the effect of the war on food supplies and cooperation, uh, you know, supply change yeah. and on and on. So I think where the rubber meets the road with climate change will be the effect on agriculture. I mean, agriculture was impossible until the Holocene about 10,000 years ago, because of the instability of the climate and and the Pleistocene, you know, the last two million years or so. And if you look at at the fluctuation in temperatures, you know, decade to decade or year to year, Pleistocene, it looked like this, then the Holocene, it's it's really level like that. And that's what we're really mucking around with. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think at the bottom of the, the ice ages, the temperatures were something like four or five degrees Celsius cooler, and we're probably headed for three or four degrees Celsius warmer uh, by the end of the, this century or shortly thereafter. And the big thing will be the fluctuations, the unpredictability of climate. And you're, you're already beginning to see that with crop failures in different places around the world. And that'll manifest mm-hmm. itself in uh, like social instability. Uh, migration, you know, on and on, these problems just sort of, you know, snowball and escalate and they, they spill off, um, you know, from one thing to another. It, it, I think in in terms of policy, you just can't deal with these things in isolation either. I mean, it's not just overpopulation. It's not just uh, fossil fuel overexploitation. It's not just climate change. It's not just inequality. It's all these things rolled into one.
0: Mm, exacerbating each other.
1: Another thing sort of jumped out to me in terms of, you know, looking at, at state society is, is, um, is the role of government. There's a very good economist called a Mariana Mazzucato, an, a, an American Italian, no, an American Italian who lives in, in the UK, I think. Uh, but she writes a lot about, you know, the role of government in, in modern societies, And we have this false dich- dichotomy between like the government and, uh, you know, the free market and so on. But, you know, markets can exist without governments. If you look at every developed economy, uh, the government's role in the economy is really dominant. And in the U.S., it's something like 30, 34 percent of GDP is um, comes from government. Norway, it's a little bit higher, 38 percent. France, it's much higher than that. But but all these countries, you know, the government really funds projects that can't be done by the private sector. There's some great, like Elon Musk, for example, this you know, American billionaire, who goes around, uh, you know, talking about free enterprise and denouncing government interference. Well, Tesla was actually started with government money. I mean, he he got his start with the um, the financial bailout in 2009. His company got a 440 million dollar loan government to get started and now half the profit from tesla comes from selling carbon credits to another government a government project the healthcare system the you know military industrial complex energy system and on and on comes from government uh, spending it's just a matter of where the money goes
0: mm. i wonder then what a free market would look like without it being propped up by by state and then also by Disseminating those power structures, which are social relationships between oligarchs, whether they're politicians or businessmen, um, I wonder then what that would do to the yeah. ultra-social superorganism.
1: Yeah, it, and the, it couldn't exist. The human organism couldn't exist without uh, without government, massive government spending and amassing capital and surplus to uh, to keep the thing going. Hmm. There's a really fascinating book by Philip Morawski, an economist, about neoliberalism, I and mean, he really just one of the first people to point out that uh, neoliberalism of you know Friedrich Hayek and so on, um, they don't they're not against the government. I mean, they recognize the importance of the government and the economy. It's just that in propping up the superorganism. And I think Hayek actually uses the term, I mean, he really believes that the the human economy was a superorganism. He thought it was a good thing, uh, and people should submit to the will of this thing. But yeah, um, I, I, the economy just couldn't couldn't exist without the government.
0: So what is next then? Is you said you're you feel pessimistic about the future, but nonetheless, um, what kind of structures or um, paradigms do we need to put into place in order to constrain the exponential growth of this economics superorganism? organism, and also have it not dictate, have that paradigm not dictate the the well being of people and planet, and have it the other way around.
1: Well, first of all, i take a really long-term perspective. I mean, the system will change. I mean, it, it can't go on like this. Um, resources is getting scarce. Complexity is get, just getting uh, too too heavy, too complicated to sustain. Uh, so if you look at, if looking ahead, you know, a couple hundred years, I'm pretty optimistic that we'll have a better world in 200 years. It's just, you know, maybe a hundred years It's just a matter, uh, a matter of getting there.
0: Really? I mean... But we're going to increase our warming by three or four degrees.
1: Yeah. Uh, agriculture won't be possible. The population will shrink either, you know, one way or or another. And uh, yeah, it'll be, again, if it doesn't, uh, if, uh, it, you know, three or four degrees warmer, the ecosystems will change. Populations, I think, will go into simpler societies, simple agriculture or hunter-gatherers or whatever. Uh, yeah, and I th- I th- again, I'll... It's not a, hunter-gatherers were not, uh, you know, it wasn't a Garden of Eden. It was a harsh life, a rough life, and so on. But uh, in some ways, it's, uh, you know, again, sustainable, egalitarian. Uh, I think that'll be better. But, um, you know, getting there is going uh, to be a problem. And I, I just can't see that we'll do anything about climate change, uh, anything meaningful. But on the other hand, because what's the other problem? So the problems with the human economy, like inequality and so on, we know how to deal with those problems. There have been successful policies to make societies better. You know, the Scandinavian countries, uh, uh, even a country in Africa like Rwanda is, I mean, it's amazing what they've done there after this horrible genocide that happened 25 years ago. So, you know, and strong leadership, but in terms of making the world socially a better place, uh, you know, we know what to do. It's just a matter of, you know, fighting the powers that be to give up some of the surplus to make the world a better place for, uh, for humans. And, you know, we know better health care, universal health care, more money for education, and also protecting uh, what's left of the natural world. You know, E.O. Wilson has called for half, half the earth to be set aside uh, for nature. Uh, so expand the national parks uh, and so on. And again, setting aside these places for uh, for nature, it doesn't mean keeping humans out. It means keeping markets out. You know, don't let the markets go into these places right. and you know, create markets for you know, elephant tusks or ivory or whatever pangolins. I mean, on and on. So we can make the world a better place uh, until some some better system comes. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. That is such a wonderful sentence. It's not about keeping humans out. It's about keeping markets out. That is such an important distinction, Um, increasingly so, I think. John, I'm aware because of the technical um, difficulties that we're having, Um, I'm going to wrap us up 10 minutes earlier than I normally would. First of all, uh, where can people get their hands on a copy of your book?
1: It's at Cambridge University Press. You can order it uh, directly from them, I think uh amazon if a lot of people don't are sort of shying away from amazon now but it's you know it's pretty uh pretty much available <laughs> There are probably used copies flying around now it was published uh, in october and uh you know have people free to email me if they want uh, john Gowdy at earth earthlink.net
0: john Gowdy at earthlink.net i will uh put that on the planet critical website so people can email you um and my final question for you then john is who would you like to platform
1: yeah, uh, well, you might talk to Lisi Kral, uh, L-I-S-I, uh, Kral, K-R-A-L-L, and she's at SUNY Cortland. Another person, uh, very good ecological economics, is John Erickson uh, at the University of Vermont. There's another guy, James Trinello at uh, Boston University, and he's the, he's an ant specialist, but he also gets into uh uh, you know, human social evolution, so on. And he's done a lot of work on the shrinking human brain and relating that to what's happening in ants. So
0: Fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Listen, John, thank you so much for your time today. It was so great speaking with you. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: It's great talking to you. And thanks for what you're doing, doing a wonderful work.
0: Thank you so much. If you want to get your hands on a copy of John's book, I've put links to it over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, support the project with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com or on the Planet Critical Patreon page. Supporting the podcast also directly supports my climate corruption investigations. So a huge thank you to the Planet Critical community who make this work possible. Thank you all for listening. See you next week.